G'day, welcome to Lunch Money. My name is Nick Samios. I am the uh, Director and Fund Manager here at Hermes Capital, and I am your Lunch Money host. Now, as you know, uh, Lunch Money is the uh, online and social media home for uh, special situations, workouts, and capital raising professionals. And one of those uh, special situations is mergers and acquisitions, uh, buying or selling businesses. Uh, is it a seller's market? That's the question I've got. There's a lot of money sloshing around the capital markets, as you know. We've had various economists and experts over the past few weeks since we kicked off in 2021 uh, talking about that very feature. Interest rates are super low. Uh, surely now's a, a good time to sell your business. And one of the ways of selling businesses is via a trade sale. So I thought that we'd specifically talk a little bit about that. Before I introduce uh, our two guests today, however, I will do the customary reminder. Right. Firstly, share, like, or subscribe our podcast, please. Um, help us to uh, to get the message out and make it more engaging uh, when more of your colleagues watch and ask questions, etc. And when they do ask a question live, uh, then I'll send them one of these wonderful lunch money mugs. Uh, it is a mug uh, that keeps your uh, hot beverages uh, hotter and it makes them more nutritious. Plus, it's very stylish to sit in your office uh, drinking with one of these. Okay, I think I've done all the housekeeping. It's now time for me to introduce our first guest, uh, and that is Andrew Casson. G'day, Andrew. How are you? I'm very well yourself. Very well indeed. So Andrew is uh, from Succession Plus. Uh, his primary focus is on the sale of privately held businesses valued between one million and a hundred million, uh, predominantly in in service industries, including health and allied care, recruitment, labour hire, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I've known Andrew for some time. Um, firstly, tell me, Andrew, as uh, as uh, as a business broker, what is it that's been keeping you busy this week? <laughs> well, there's a lot of uh, well, now that we're past the the COVID lockdown stage uh, there's been a lot of pent-up demand for services and for people really considering the sale so it's been quite a few inquiries from business owners who are looking at selling it's had some inquiries also from people looking at buying um been really busy pushing out a couple of the opportunities we're working on at the moment uh, working on it with, with those trying to coax out a couple of offers which are actually due any, any minute now which will be fantastic and also doing some coaching of um, of one uh, husband and wife team who are running a business, which is always interesting. Um, and we've just started on a buy side engagement as well, so working with uh, a buyer who wants who's identified uh, a couple of acquisitions they want to do. So it's been a busy week, and here I am talking to you on a Friday afternoon, which is um, a lot of fun actually. Excellent. A couple of things that you've said there. One is that you're coaxing offers and, um, you know, in sort of preparation for this, I, I thought that we might tease out some trade sales stuff. So I guess we'll get to that. Uh, I imagine that coaxing offers is part of the trade sale process. But you also said that um, you, you've taken on a, a buy side engagement. So yeah. what, what goes on there? It's, it's someone who's looking to, you know, make organic growth is stifled and they're looking to to, to grow by acquisition or, or what, 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 what triggers that? Well, it tends to be growth by acquisition. Um, a lot of business owners end up with excess cash, which is a nice problem to have, um, and they need to deploy that because it's no good sitting in the bank. So they look at growth, particularly when they're growing towards their own exit down the track. Um, so this particular situation is one where the business owner has come to us and said, I need help. I identified a couple of opportunities. I've negotiated basic terms. 
I need someone to advise all the way through from this point. So we draft the term sheets, um, put them in front of the, the vendors, negotiate final terms, and then we'll undertake the due diligence process on behalf of the buyer uh, and then run the process of getting contracts drawn up once we've got all that finalised. Now, interesting, uh, you know, usually business owners, uh, you know, uh, sort of a Got pretty good opinions of themselves. I mean, that's why they're business owners. Um, and they, you know, one, one of the one of the traps that people fall into, of course, is thinking they can do it all themselves. So, what is it that compels them to come to someone like yourself, to you know, as opposed to doing it themselves? So, what why, what what is it that that gets them over that line? That the realization is it a confidentiality thing, or is it as you said, you mentioned uh, documentation and uh, uh, and that sort of stuff? I mean, what what is it that what is it that compels them to come to you as a professional? Are we talking to buy side or sell side? On the buy side. Buy side. Um, time. A lot right. of it. And also a lack of expertise. It's a complex process. Uh, there's a lot of traps, a lot of pitfalls. And you know, there's a lot of money at stake. And one of the truisms of the M&A market, and you, any, if you read any research at any time around the world, it'll say 80% of acquisitions fail to create shareholder value. Um, so anybody who's going to engage a professional to help them is they want to be one of the twenty percent where the acquisition right. is going to create shareholder value, not destroy it. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I suppose we all want to. Be, yeah, we all want to be one of the twenty, one of the twenty percent successful ones, don't we? Yeah. So, yes. so that's yeah. So I guess uh, yeah. So obviously you're getting stuff that crosses your desk, but even if it's not, even if it's not, if it's not something that's uh, on your desk at the moment, then you're able to uh, identify who to approach and, and all that sort of stuff. Correct. And uh, I, I, okay, all right. Well, look, what we'll do is we'll, we'll get into some nitty gritty uh, in a minute. But first, I'll just introduce our next uh, our next guest, who is Matt Adams. G'day, Matt. How are you doing? Good, Nick. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Very good. Now I've got Matt as the managing director of Dynamic Corporate Investments. He does wear wear a number of uh, of different hats, but he's an experienced financial advisory professional. He specialises in restructuring, uh, governance, risk, and transactional matters. Uh, and I was saying to Matt a little bit earlier. I mean, I I know him more as a sort of a corporate advisor slash professional director, uh, and on the capital raising side. But you've also got a restructuring background. Uh, so with all of that going on, what is it that's been keeping you busy lately? Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, yeah. Um, so really, two things. Two things this week. Actually, we've got a um, and dovetailing into what we're talking about today. So I'm a uh, I'm a board member of a of a listed hospitality group, and that's that's on the acquisition trail. And uh, we're pursuing um, half a dozen or so venues at the moment, uh, and some of them more more to progress than others. So we're in DD on a few uh, and really chasing the others. But we're um, we're a company that's sort of on that growth growth path. But obviously need to keep yourselves very disciplined, et cetera, in what you actually purchase and acquire. Um, so that, that's been keeping me busy. Uh, and then um, I'm at the tail end of a large renewables restructuring that we did last year, um, and that involved um, a business that was in, in some form of a distress but had a great underlying business, uh, and the restructuring really involved some operational turnaround for it, but then also introducing um, some new equity stakeholders that were that were backed by private equity. And, uh, and this week I've just been sort of finishing up the the tail of that, I guess. Uh, I guess uh, in the restructuring world, particularly as you sort of get more into that middle market space and out of the SME space, some of these corporate restructures and turnarounds do often result, obviously, in a divestment, but they can also result uh, in getting into the acquisition path as well. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And, and look, a restructuring is a, is a very, very wide word and it could mean anything. But if the, if the bones of the underlying business are good, then, then absolutely using a restructure to, uh, to right-size the operations and restructure the balance sheet uh, and then putting on a growth path, which often does include acquisitions, um, is, is actually part of that and can be very, very successful. And do you think? Uh, I mean, would you agree? Obviously, there's a there's a surplus of capital about you know as a, you know with the low interest rates and and uh, you know governments all around the world flooding the market with cash to try and uh, keep the patient alive. So there's a lot of money around. Uh, I mean, is it fair to say also that we are in a low a low organic growth environment? Really, I mean, you'd expect M and A's to really feature again prominently this year. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and what I will say about that, and I think your your comment just then, Nick, about there being a lot of cash around um, and a lot of appetite is absolutely true. Um, what I will say is that a change that that I've certainly noticed in the last say twelve months or so is though that that cash is becoming more disciplined, um, and especially going through the sort of DD process and what assets they are prepared to invest into, etc., um, is becoming more disciplined, um, and therefore. You, you have to match that discipline on the other side of the transaction as well. Yeah, I mean, you say that. I mean, I'm sure that there is discipline, but there's also a lot of competition for deals, would it, would it be fair to say? I mean, as I say, the deals that I've seen, uh, you know, you're never the only uh, only bidder. There's a lot of people bidding for these things. And, and, I, and I guess while there may be discipline around caution, uh, certainly uh, hurdle rates just seem to be seem, seem to be falling away. Is that, would, you, would you agree with that? I absolutely would. And, and what I think it means is that we've almost got a two-speed, two um, I guess, M&A acquisition sort of environment at the moment. And th those assets where there really isn't any value or there's no upside to them or whatever, I think they're, they're, they're potentially finding it hard to, um, to attract capital and, and, and even debt. On the other side, though, th those good underlying assets um, are much sought after you're right and there's you know half a dozen people fighting over them. Uh, and what that's doing is just compressing the the the, the you know multiples etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, look, we will bring uh, Andrew back, and uh, we'll we'll sort of get into the uh, the topic of the day. So, Andrew, uh, to what extent uh, a trade sale? So, obviously, there's a number of different kinds of uh, of, of M and As. There's you know, a PE firm buying a business, for example, um, um, but but another, and you know, or just a professional investor or someone just looking to get into business. But another uh, major form, obviously, is is the trade sale. I mean, is that what 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 portion of your business would would end up being trade sales? Um, without putting actual figure on, I'd say it's definitely the majority would be trade yeah. buyers. I think what you were saying before is is right. Inorganic growth is tough. Um, so when there's cash around, and cash is cheap at the moment, so if you can access it, the way to grow is to buy, you know, a competitor, someone upstream or downstream from what you're doing. Um, you know, a, a business is going to allow you to grow without, um, you know, without cannibalising your own market, really. And, okay, so what, what, uh, what, what, when you've got someone say on the sell side coming to you looking for a you know thinking that they might they might be looking for a trade buyer what what are some of the the steps or tips what are some tips that you have for them um well typically the, the rules are the same whether you're selling to a, a strategic trade buyer or you're selling to a financial buyer you've still got to make sure that the business is well set up as an asset and that it's going to stand out as an appealing asset in the marketplace 
um, I think that's one area where a lot of business owners fall down in the process is that the business is worth a lot more to them than it is to anybody else and they don't have the ability to step back and, and look at the business objectively and really determine how appealing it might be to someone else. I think there's, a, there's an underlying assumption that someone's just come, going to come along and write a check and they can scoot off into the sunset without any, without any hassles, and that's just not the way things work. Um, so, you know, when, you, when you're getting ready or you want to be appealing as a, as a trade option or as a, you know, as a sale in general, You've really got to make sure that the business is no longer dependent on you as the business owner. That's absolutely critical. And, you know, even Michael Gerber talked about that back in the, with the E-Myth. You know, you're going to be yeah. working for the business, not in the business. And that's you know, true words have never been spoken, really, when you're, you're trying to prepare for sales. So you've got to get out of the business. Um, secondly, you've got to make sure that you're not overly reliant on one or a very, very small number of customers, clients. Um, and that even those customers have got to be, yeah, it's, it's got to be an appealing profile. Um, we've got one client at the moment that's very, very difficult to move because 80% of their business goes through Bunnings. Yeah. Now, that, that's wonderful, and the business performs in a way that suggests that it is wonderful, but no one else will touch it because that relationship is, it's very, very heavily concentrated on that relationship, um, and there's a risk that... If something went wrong, if the contract was pulled, then there'd be no business. So, you know, whilst the business itself makes a few million dollars a year in, in profit um, and they do very well, it's it's too risky. Um, and the final, what I call the big rocks, really, um, principal dependence, customer dependence, and the final one is systemization. Um, you, that's that knowledge capture. Yep. Anybody who's going to buy a business is going to be assuming that all of the key people in the business will leave. And if they're not assuming that, then they're not going about the acquisition very well. So that what they're going to be looking for is the extent to which knowledge is captured in the organisation through systems, processes, workflows, um, automation, databases. You know, day one when they own the business and half their staff walk out, then there's got to be a process for how they then recruit, you know, attract, recruit, uh, train, remunerate people. Um, on board them and the business can keep on you know, keeping on. All right. Well, you've given us quite a bit to unpack there, Andrew. There's a lot a lot of bullet points there. So, Matt, where would you like to dive in? Uh, he started off, uh, Andrew started off uh, by saying uh, getting, uh, I guess, firstly making sure that the business is, uh, is presentable, I suppose. Uh, I mean, as someone who's acquired businesses, I mean, what are, you, what are your comments there when you've, when you've gone in and yeah. it's just not been ready? Yeah, look, I mean... Uh, just to just to start with, I think maybe a, a different, slightly different way to put what Andrew said um, is from a purchaser's point of view, what a purchaser is prepared to pay is is generally it's generated by risk, um, and so the more risk there is to any one of those matters that Andrew raised um, or any others, frankly, will drive down the multiple that a purchaser is prepared to pay. So as a as a sort of business owner getting ready to sell, and obviously the business owner's advisors de-risking as much of those things as you can will frankly get you get you a better multiple um and and that that's what your ultimate objective has to be um but certainly of those things that that andrew pointed out um all all very very important um i think the the reliance on an owner um is is from what andrew just said then um in my opinion that's probably the biggest thing and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of potential acquisitions in various sectors 
and in various roles that I've had that I've kicked the tyres on and walked away from um, just because I I haven't been able to get comfort around the fact um, that the business isn't, you know, wholly or materially reliant on on that owner, whether it be from an operations point of view or key customer contract point of view, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so being able to take out that risk is, is I think, um, very, very important for business owners. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, when you sort of look at the textbook, you know, the value of the business, you know, it's either an EBITDA multiple or or it's, uh, you know, you're applying some sort of uh, uh, IRR, you know, um, um, uh, expected return, and, and I guess the the lower the risk, then the lower the uh, lower the expected uh, return that's required, or the hurdle rate that's required. Um, I, I guess, uh, Andrew, you, yeah, because you were saying that. I guess there's a couple of key risks there. I mean, I, I've looked at businesses where you know eighty percent of the business is one customer. I mean, is that even really a business? I guess is one of the questions. Um, and and how does how does a diverse customer base affect the multiples? Um, well, yes, it's a business. Um, <laughs> it's definitely a risky one because if you lose that customer, then your uh, business probably doesn't have much in the way of legs. Um, you know, we were dealing with a transport company that had one client and it was hauling dangerous goods and it was effectively seen as the transport division of that client. Um, but, again, that was seen as just too high risk because if that relationship broke down because the owner was no longer there, then there wouldn't be a business left, even though they'd be have 30-odd they'd have trucks and pieces of, uh, of equipment. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real concern. And when you're de-risking the business, to Matt's point, um, that's going to be one of the key areas you're going to be looking at, you know, making sure that you've got a good spread of customers. Or, or if you do have a big customer alliance like that, that the contract that you have to provide services is pretty ironclad. Okay. Um, and what about, you mentioned before, um, you know, balance sheets. Uh, I mean, I've said a number of times, you know, we are in a bit of a two-speed situation where uh, balance sheets of some businesses, uh, are, are the debt's been paid down. And I think there was a statistic where there's $250 million, uh, $250 billion, I should say, in household and business savings, in savings accounts, and half of that is in business savings. So $125 billion of, um, in business savings, which is massive. Uh, I hope I've got my millions and billions worked out correctly there, but it's a lot of money. It must be the billions. It's a lot of money that's sitting in savings accounts. So there are some businesses that are well cashed up. Uh, they've paid debt down, and presumably if they've got uh, balance sheets with some real assets on them, then they're, um, then they're in a position where, where they, can leverage, uh, they can leverage that. I mean, and then, of course, on the flip side of that, there's businesses that, that maybe have, um, have gone a few rounds of the kitchen and don't have any capacity and they're, they're looking to sell. I mean, what's, what, what's the availability of finance like, Matt? I'll, I'll go with you. I mean, what, what, what's the sort of how are you finding banks when it comes to raising capital for the purpose of an acquisition if, in, in a trade sale scenario? Yeah, look, I, I think that um, I, I don't think that there's massive problems with that at the moment. I, I think there, there is some conservative conservatism that sat there for the last sort of year. Um, but I think for for good assets and more importantly good customers, um, there's certainly that availability there. Um, now, whether that's always the banks though, or then you move into the the sort of shadow banking industry and you know private equity capital and private capital, etc. Um, I, I mean, I think if you put all those together, 
especially sort of at that mid-market and above, which is easy to access that non-bank finance, um, then, then there absolutely is, is the, the capacity there. Um, in saying that, once again, the same as we talked about now, um, you know, vendors have to dress up their business for sale and do the proper things. Um, purchases as well have to be able to um, very articulately put their finance application together, et cetera. Um, and look, from where I sit, um, where that sometimes falls over is once again, businesses that don't want to take, um, you know, advisors on that know what they're doing in that. Uh, and then it gets a whole lot harder to, um, to, to access that capital. But certainly for the right opportunities, we're, we're seeing there is, there is appetite there for, for capital. Um, interesting enough, we, we had some um, assets in the um, in the in the event sort of event space last year that we that we dressed up as quite a big player, um, and, and we we sold them. And when we sold them, that was the the access to finance and all was was a little bit under pressure. Um, we we actually negotiated a, a a term sheet as in effect the vendor with with a with a, an external financier um, that obviously wasn't binding, but was able to be given to potential purchasers. Um, you know, along with the along with the IM, et cetera, um, wow. which made the sale of those assets easier because we gave them a, a, a financing solution if they were if they were um, if they wanted to take it. Now it turned out the people we ended up selling it to didn't didn't take advantage of it, uh, but it certainly helped competition in in selling those assets, which obviously drove up the price somewhat. Yeah. Okay. Listen, we've got uh, we've got a question here from uh, one of our loyal viewers, Kenel Tonkin, who, funnily enough, his business is called Systemized to Grow. So uh, obviously, our uh, our show today is right uh, is right in the zone for him, uh, and he's he's asking here, and I'll put this to you first, Andrew. How much can a business owner improve the multiple his or her company can achieve if a key person risk is removed? And B concentr- customer concentration risk is removed. So I guess you know, looking at that uh, scenario there, where there is a heavy concentration to a customer or a key person. I mean, how does that, in your experience, uh, affect the multiples? I'll come to you first, Andrew. Um, again, you can't really put figures on that. Ultimately, what a buyer is looking for is sustainability, um, and the first thing you're going to look at is the key person risk and, the, and then the customer concentration risk. So. The higher the risk profile, the lower the multiple. Um, now we're typically looking at multiple ranges in that two to five times EBIT sort of range. And if the business is heavily key person dependent, uh, heavily customer dependent, it's going to be down the bottom of that range, that two to five times EBIT range. Um, and if those things are removed, then they're going to be heading up, you know, north of four times EBIT. So you could effect- effectively double the value of your business by removing. Uh, the key person risk and the customer concentration risk. Uh, if you do them right, uh, it's not just. This isn't about just painting painting the uh, the walls and putting new carpet down in a house to right. sell. Yeah. Um, the itself still has to be fundamentally sound and performing and productive, um, because if you know the, the person who's buying the business is buying an asset that is going to keep on generating cash for them, and hopefully some cross selling opportunities, so they get some synergies out of the the purchases as well. Um, but to to answer the question, you know, you could effectively double the, the value of a business if you remove those, wow. depending on where you're starting from. Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a lot of depending ons that come into that to answering sure, that question. Sure, sure, um, sure. But if okay. I'm assessing a business, that's what I'm going to be looking at. You mentioned before, uh, and I'll just stick with you on this point. You mentioned before uh, that some of the stuff that you're doing lately is uh, is coaching. Uh, I mean, is this is this is this general business coaching, or are you coaching towards uh, preparing for sale? And is this oh, the sort of stuff that you're talking about? Sales. So, 
you do a diagnostic of, of a business um, and see where the gaps are, um, and particularly you know, this key person risk and customer concentration risk and how well their financial management is set up. And this particular client that I'm working with at the moment, um, their accounts are a bit of a mess. So we've got to make sure that they get fixed up because the last thing you want to be doing is showing that to a potential buyer. They'll, uh, they'll run a mile. Um, but also just making sure we've got enough time ahead of us so that we can show a, a good solid 12 months of trading with different disciplines in place, like a budget. Um, they have never operated with a budget. So we're going to be putting that in um, into the business and so we can start tracking against you know, against the budget. It sounds really simple to people who are in that in that game, but a lot of business owners don't know what they don't know. They don't realise yeah. they need them. They don't realise how much value they can add. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, what, uh, what, 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 what do you reckon, Matt? What, what are your thoughts there? No, I think I think. Look, in terms of the, the the question, I think I echo Andrew. I was I was probably even going to be a little bit harsher than that and say, if a business has you know massive key person risk and massive customer concentration, a business like that, um, I think you're probably lucky to get two times at that point. So I think I, I, I think that there is massive upside in addressing those 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 two risks. Um, but as Andrew says, it has to be done over a period of time. It's not just paying the walls. It, it really isn't. Um, and look, I, I think that the businesses preparing themselves for sale, um, you know, working with a trusted advisor over over a number of months or years to prepare that business for sale, um, you're going to see the the value uplift in multiples, you know, will be massive. All right. Okay. Well, look, uh, we'll say thank you very much, Kenelm, for your question. And Kenelm uh, is a chap that I met many years ago when he was a conference organiser. He, since then, he's been to New York and he's, uh, he's back in Australia. So uh, one of these days, Kenelm, I would love to get you on lunch money because I'm sure you'd have lots of very interesting stuff to share. Uh, one more yep. thing to, that, to that answer that question. And I think yep. Matt's sort of heading this way, talking about being brutal. Um, but I think the difference is really, it's not even about multiples, it's about how is the business actually sellable? Sellable, yeah. 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 And if it's got a high key person risk and high customer dependence, it's not even sellable. So your market value is effectively zero. It's a zero time multiple, it's not even two times. Yeah, right. Well, nobody likes that. Uh, <laughs> telling someone, uh, yep, your business has got a zero times multiple. Okay, well, well yeah, the sustainability is obviously, you know, if it's because it's, a, you know, I guess how many years into the future you think you can lock away that income. I was watching, uh, I can't remember if it was Bloomberg, or one of those share, one of those share trading investment uh, YouTube shows, which uh, I've got uh, in my system at home, and they talk about Moat, which was this new concept that I hadn't heard of before, but you guys probably uh, see you're nodding your head there, Andrew. Yeah, this this concept of how many years of sustainability you have. But look, uh, we won't we won't get into that. What I'm interested in, since we've got you, Matt, and since you do have uh, a little bit of a of an insolvency uh, background as well, um, do you you know in all of your uh, insolvency friends, and I guess uh, uh, you know your insolvency side of your business as well, there, there's obviously no insolvency really going on at the moment. Um, but I, I would have expected going into the beginning of COVID, you know, that there'd be lots of opportunities for, you know, for businesses to a exit, and there'd be there'd be a lot of distressed sales about. Uh, I mean, is that is that something that you that's on your you know on on your uh, on your projections this this year is is buying distressed businesses, or do you think that that's not going to happen for another little while? 
Yeah, look, it's it's interesting. I think that the opportunity is absolutely there, there, Nick. Um, and it is. Um, and what I'll use as an example for that is the is the hospitality business I'm in. And as I've already said, we're on the we're on the growth path there. But this, this answers your question, I think. Um, is I think there is there is absolute opportunity to acquire distressed businesses, and, and we're certainly you know looking for those sort. Um, and on the other side of my business, I'm actually working with a with with some distressed business at the moment in in divesting or getting value out of it, etc. Um. So I think that there, I think there is opportunity there. I think what everyone needs to be very, very careful about, and sort of talking to equity owners and all about this, is where it is sometimes lost. Is, um, you know, there is a difference between a business that's really just been hanging on through COVID and, and probably wasn't much to start with before COVID. Um, and whilst there's absolute uh, interest in good assets at the moment or underlying assets, um, I think that those sort of assets are going to find it hard to find a home quite frankly um in saying that once again distressed businesses that can be restructured and good underlying businesses um there is absolutely opportunity there and there is a plethora of of sort of you know um opportunists and others out there um you know looking for those opportunities uh and you know the key is the key is to sort of hook them in but then work in all the things that the three of us have just spoken about to make those assets as attractive as possible to, you know, get the highest possible, um, you know, price for stakeholders at the end of the day. Okay. Now, look, I've got three more questions I want to get through and we don't have a lot of time. So I'll just, uh, I'll just lob these at you and, uh, and see what, uh, see what you come back with. I've got, um, the first one is, is my question for you, Andrew. Um, how often do you have a situation where someone's bringing you a business to sell and, uh, you know, the question is, are they looking to to really get out of a – how do you differentiate between something that's a hospital pass because they just need to get out because otherwise they're going to go broke versus, uh, you know, someone who's genuinely looking to retire or, or, or move on? Um, over the years, it's got easier. That's probably the best way of answering that, Nick. Initially, I would – I probably wasn't even that discerning about the clients I brought on and paid the price down the track. Yeah. Um, but one of the big questions that I ask people is, what what are you moving towards? What are you, what are you going to do next um, once you sell? And if they can't answer that question, it's pretty clear that they're in a bit of a mess and they're trying to move away from the business rather than moving towards something new. Um, so that's one of the joys of dealing with the people who are actually genuinely retiring. A lot of them have got quite a bucket list. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I was looking at a I was looking at a business uh, for one of my family members, and uh, it was uh, I won't I won't say what it was or where it was, but when you looked uh, when you it was through a, a business broker in Queensland, and when you looked at it, uh, you realised you know the sister was working in the business and probably for nothing. Uh, you know, once you put some real costs into the business, it really wasn't uh, it really wasn't a business and it wasn't going to survive. Now, that was a distress scenario. Listen, I won't I won't ask you that same question, Matt, because I've got a another question for you. I don't know. If uh, if through your travels, if you've met uh, Paul Mazzola, he was uh, he has been on Lunch Money before, and he was a senior corporate banker uh, maybe a decade or so ago. He's now at the University of Wollongong, and he asks this question: If vendors are offering their business for sale together with a lending package from a bank, which I think you alluded to a bit earlier, to fund the acquisition, then how does the bank price the loan in advance without knowing the borrower? So yeah, absolutely. No, no, and a great question, and something that we deal with. Um, and I must admit. The example I used before, the the um, the financing package didn't actually come from a bank; it came from a, a, a slash private equity um, fund manager. But in saying that, um, the what you put together is not a; it's a conditional finance package to start with. Uh, it, it's high level terms, 
um, and it's obviously subject to DD, et cetera, from the, um, from the financier uh, on, on the incoming purchaser. So, so, so it's not a, it's not a here's, a here's a ready-made solution, but it's more there's a solution here, but you may have to jump, jump, jump through some hoops and meet some hurdles to, to take advantage of that. Uh, and pricing, et cetera, which is a good question, pricing was expressed as a range, um, both in terms of uh, straight pricing um, and there was also some some equity kickers attached to this for the financier coming in. Right. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully that uh, hopefully that answers uh, your question there, Doctor Paul. Thank you very much for uh, for putting it up. Um, now, I just again, I've I've got just two more areas I wanted to very quickly touch on. What uh, just Andrew? I'll start with you, and then I'll get your feedback, Matt. What are your thoughts on on vendor finance, and how often would you encourage the vendor to to sit on sit on some of the price? Do you have a general philosophy or feeling towards that? Um, vendor finance. I don't. I'm not generally against that. I'm, I'm more against earnouts than vendor finance. So deferred payments that are linked to achieving certain KPIs. I've just seen too many situations where that's been manipulated by the buyer, so that the the vendor doesn't get any future payments. So vendor finance is fine as long as they're the only lender. Um, the biggest problem comes when the um, the buyer wants is, is getting some acquisition finance, and they want vendor finance terms, and then you get into this. Well, who ranks higher? I yeah, I can uh, I can answer that question. It's me as the lender, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's always a very easy answer. A question for me to answer. What about yourself, Matt? I mean, I think the interesting thing about vendor finance is you know, particularly where you're dealing with a higher purchase price. Uh, it does keep the vendor honest, for want of a better word, I suppose, in in making sure that the the value is realised. I mean, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's look, it's an interesting point because I think um, I, I absolutely see where Andrew's coming from, and from a vendor point of view, I agree. Um, when, when he used the word earn out, um, my ears pricked up a little bit. So there's two um, there's two transactions that I've been involved in the last year, last year where. Um, there was a, I guess it was very, very hard to get to a meeting of the minds between the vendor and us as the purchaser on on price. Um, and both those transactions, um, we actually ended up doing deals with with earnouts in there. Um, and, and I absolutely think there is the risk, exactly as Andrew set out. Um, but what we said to the vendor is, well, look, you want your four times multiple or whatever. Um, we don't see that because of this, this, and this, and we're only proud to pay two and a half or whatever. Um, but but how about we how how about we 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 lower that two and a half a little bit, um, and we'll give you an uplift on an earnout that makes sense based on what you're telling us is the reason why there should be value there that we can't get certainty around um, over the next um, you know two to four years or whatever the, whatever it would be. So I think that's where an earnout possibly can be somewhat beneficial um, and shouldn't hurt the vendor too much in that because what we as the purchaser were saying is. We're not going to give you four times. You're not getting. You're not getting. If yeah. you want cash up front, you're not getting. Okay. Listen, uh, I, uh, Warren Henry from WA. Uh, Warren asks, uh, "Do you see the sale of service industry businesses more difficult in the current environment?" Just quickly, um, Matt. I'll start with you. No, I don't think so. Um, but the the but, as there always is, is um, you know, if the business hasn't been performing for whatever reason, if it's gone through a COVID slowdown or shutdown or whatever, well then. I mean that obviously raises questions to value, etc. Um, and then you also also bring it back to all those issues that we've talked about before, being key man and all that. Um, but but I don't think it's more difficult. I think that those those businesses can be difficult to sell full stop if they're not set up properly for sale. 
Okay. Uh, Andrew? Pretty good answer from Matt there. I think if they're not well set up, they're, they're destined to fail. But, you know, it really depends on which businesses within that whole service sector. Accounting firms, you can you could list one today and it'll be gone tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, you know, financial planning, you know, with these buyers lining up for those sorts of businesses at the moment, surprisingly. Um, but can you sell a white-collar recruitment company? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, a, lot, a lot of demand for those at the moment. So irrespective of how well set up they are, uh, those particular businesses are, there's just not the buyers there for those at the moment. Um, so, no, I don't think it's more difficult. I just think it really depends on the business itself, uh, what, what characteristics it exhibits and which particular sector of the service industry it's actually in. Yeah, I guess if we had a discussion about moat, you know, to use that uh, that sexy term, um, then uh, we, I think it was Morningstar, actually, it was the Morningstar, it's a great, great little YouTube program, um, but uh, then, then you know, the thing about the service industry is that they're certainly vulnerable to changes in technology, a lot of stuff being delivered, you know, particularly over Zoom and what have you, and, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of changes in that industry, but look, I'll just go to... <laughs> I've just got I've just got a message here from my producer. You're 38 minutes in, and, and don't forget you've got lunch. That's okay because I've got lunch with one of these gentlemen, so that's that's all right. Um, what um, my last question is, and thank you very much, Warren. Really appreciate you asking that question. So uh, thank you very much for that. It was a good question. Um, my final question is, comes uh, on behalf of uh, one of my one of my friends on Twitter. Um, who is aspiring to a career as a business broker? So just uh, just wrapping up, Andrew, what would you say to to someone who's uh, aspiring to become a business broker? I would say apprentice to someone who is really good. Um, learn the ropes working for someone else. Um, choose an industry to specialise in because business owners really appreciate dealing with a broker who really understands their sector. Um, and be a voracious networker. Voracious networker. Oh, there you go. All right. What, what about you, Matt? What, what's your advice to an aspiring business broker? Yeah, look, I would say um, recognise that you're not just someone who facilitates you know, a sale and a purchase. Um, you, you, you must be, a, to be successful, you're going to have to be a trusted advisor. Um, you're going to have to be prepared to sort of get in and do the hard yards and work with businesses to prepare themselves for sale, et cetera. Um, and, and that's how you're going to get the best best results. Um, and that's obviously on top of everything Andrew just said, which I absolutely agree with. Okay. All right, guys. Well, uh, believe it or not, we've uh, we've 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 gone for forty minutes, so that means time is up. It's been uh, it has been a fascinating subject to talk about. Um, I really think that uh, you know we are going to see twenty twenty one by the time we kick up our heels at the end. It will have been the year of the the year of the M and A. So thank you uh, very much to both of you, Matt Adams from uh, a DCI group. Thank you very much. And Andrew from Succession Plus. It's been wonderful to have you. And thank you very much to uh, to those of you who've, uh, who've lobbed us in a question. Hopefully we've been able to answer those well. Um, thanks for watching. And uh, we'll talk to you all again soon. Thanks, gents. Cheers. Thanks, thanks Jim.